Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at CAMH.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. Adam McGoyan, David Cronenberg... Sarah Polly, not the most lighthearted bunch of folks. It's <laughs> true. When I sat down to interview Sarah Pauly, my expectation was that we would mostly be discussing her place in the Canadian media. This this path that she's taken from adorable child actor on CBC television and in, in that Terry Gilliam movie with Robin Williams' head floating around to where she is now, this dominant member on a very short list of working English Canadian film director slash producers. That list might actually be just... Sarah Polly. Anyhow, I thought that maybe we would argue about our differing views on Canadian film funding. I'd try to get her to admit that she went on a date with me once, sort of, and that would pretty much be it. What I didn't know when we sat down a few weeks ago was that the Harvey Weinstein scandal was about to break. I didn't know that Sarah Polly knew Weinstein, that she'd been in a Miramax film and she had been propositioned by Harvey Weinstein. I didn't know that his abuse of power and the whole Hollywood culture that tolerated and enabled and maybe even encouraged that abuse of power, that all of that was, was part of the reason why she left acting. And knowing all of that now, which I do because uh, Sarah has just written an incredible piece in the New York Times about all of that, knowing that now, it, it, it helps me to understand why our conversation took the turn that it did why it was a very different conversation than the one that I was expecting, why she spoke with me so candidly and, and personally about these issues, about harassment and abuse and the law. And it helps me understand why she was okay with us talking on the record about this one detail that neither of us had ever discussed before publicly. Uh, we had never before talked about the role that Sarah Pauly played in a story that I investigated. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by 2,873 of you who support us on Patreon. And that's the whole reason why this exists. That is still where most of our money comes from. 2,873 of you 
who are responsible not only for this podcast existing, but for our journalism. They are funding our journalism and our journalism has had impacts this past year alone. Our journalism has resulted in a change at the CBC. The CBC's union went to the CBC and said, look at this Canada Land story that reveals how poorly we're doing with diversity in our staff, how much less diverse the CBC is than Canada itself than the country that the CBC is supposed to represent. Do something about this. You can't deny that it is true. Look at this journalism from Canada Land. And they changed it. And they've since improved their diversity hiring practices, and they have a goal of continuing to do so. And that's because of 2,873 of you. Because of you who support us on Patreon, we were able to spend a lot of time and dedicate a lot of resource this past year into scrutinizing the alt-right and the alt-right media of Canada before a lot of other people were even paying attention to them and in greater detail than anyone else, we were pouring through every piece of media that we could. We were sending reporters to rallies, be it Proud Boys or, or Soldiers of Odin or what the Rebel Media was up to or the Freedom Report. We were looking at all of this stuff and it turned out to be quite useful because after Charlottesville at an alt-right rally when someone got killed – and the alt-right media here in Canada went scurrying for cover and said, well, we're not actually alt-right and we're actually not racist. We were able to show the receipts. We'd done the work and we could put the lie to that claim. And everything that followed after that, the uh, implosion of the rebel, all of their staffers uh, fleeing, scurrying away from the rebel, others getting fired, and then conservative politicians boycotting the rebel and refusing to appear on that platform, that is all traceable to the support of 2,873 of you who support Canada Land on Patreon. And it's not that big a number because each episode of the show is listened to by over 35,000 people. So that's like 8% of our audience, 8% of our audience paying for everyone else to get this show and paying for everyone else to get our journalism on our website. And there's many more stories beyond the two I just mentioned. We reach another 80,000 people a month with our news stories. They are paying for Commons, our politics show, which tries to make politics an inclusive conversation for people outside of the Ottawa bubble. They are paying for The Imposter, our arts and culture show. I believe it is the only arts and culture show in this country that is exclusively dedicated to Canadian arts and culture. And it is a show that featured an incredible interview with Lido Pimienta. It was the first time I'd ever heard of her. It was before her album came out and it was well before she won the Polaris Prize. So those of you who are paying for the show, you are paying, each one of you is paying for like, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 other people to get our content. And you're paying for us to wake up every morning and, and do this work that we find meaningful and, and that we love. And I don't think that I will ever cease feeling grateful to you for that, for, for giving me this amazing job, for hiring me and my colleagues to do this every day. It's just a very special and uncommon thing that we have going here. And I want to say thank you for supporting Candleland to those specific people. Thank you. Now, as for the rest of you, uh, guys, it's crowdfunding month. For 11 months of the year, we make our shows and we publish to our website. And all you will ever hear me say is, if you like what we do, please support us. That's it. But for one month of the year, starting today for the next four weeks, I am going to make my case to you. I am going to tell you why I think you should support us. I'm going to tell you why we are worth it. And look, if you are never going to give us Money. If you listen to the show and read our stuff and you're like, I'm never going to give Canada Land any money, I still want you to listen to the show. Uh, I think that everybody who supports the show wants you to listen to it. That's part of why they pay for it is because they want the show to have impact. They want us to have that kind of influence. They want us to have a bigger audience than the people who explicitly support it. So I'm not going to tell you that you owe us anything. I'm not going to tell you that you have to do anything, but I'm going to tell you that I think you should. I think you should support us and uh, I, I'm, I'm going to make our case. I'm going to do that and I'm also going to tell you what we plan on doing if we get new supporters. I'm going to announce some new projects. I'm going to announce a new podcast that we want to make. And I'm going to tell you about some new stuff. We actually make stuff like t-shirts and stuff that we give away to people who support us. And we have like one thing in particular today that I'm going to tell you about that I am like really excited to tell you about. It was almost, it was just a joke that we were going to make this and then it actually became a reality. So I will unveil that later today. And the first thing that I just want to impress upon you is that we actually really do need your support. If you've ever listened to the show and thought, well, they seem like they're doing okay. They don't really need me. We absolutely need you. I'll explain why. Um, we are very lucky to have the support that we have. 
However, we suffer what anybody in any kind of credit card-based subscription service business suffers, which is attrition, churn. It's not people canceling their support for us. It's very easy to cancel your support, by the way. Patreon, it's not like a newspaper subscription where they make it impossible. So like every month, a few people cancel their support and some other people become supporters. It's a wash. It cancels itself out. But then there are the credit card expirations. And they kill us. Like as much as 5% of our funding disappears every month when people's credit cards expire. Hundreds of you, your credit cards expire and we do what we can to try to get people to come back and give us their new credit card information. And some people do, but always some people don't. And there have been months where we've lost like 4% of our total revenue because of just that attrition, that churn. So if you just do the math on that, if that's just the pattern, as much as 4% of your revenue gone a month and you carry that forward month after month, it really doesn't take that long until it's all gone and we're done. So this month of crowdfunding, it is a necessity. We do need to get more people, to get new people to support Canada Land every year just to keep doing what we're doing, just to tread water. So yes, we need your support. But I think we could do more than just tread water. I want to do more than just tread water. What I want is for Canada Land to be as good a podcast company as any other podcast company. We are competing with the biggest players out there. If you go to iTunes, to the Apple Podcasts section of your iTunes store, and you check out the ratings, there are ratings for episodes of podcasts. That tells you just like sheer numbers, which podcasts are most popular. A very familiar pattern is repeating itself. It's all American stuff in Canada. Canadians are choosing all American stuff. This American Life, S-Town, Serial, Gimlet's Podcasts, Radiotopia's Podcasts, New York Times, The Daily, NPR stuff. And there's some wonderful shows. I understand. I listen to those shows myself. But it is depressing to see the same thing in TV, the same thing in film, the same thing in books, that we are choosing American content over our own. And the only exception to that consistently is Canada Land. Canada Land, when we come out, the days that we publish, this show cracks the top 10. We do. And I'm proud to tell you that we cracked the top 10. I'm proud that we're able to compete with the big podcast companies. That's a funny thing to say, but actually there are big podcast companies out there now. What I want to alert your attention to is the difference that you'll hear at the end of our shows versus their shows. At the end of our shows, I will thank a producer. I make this show with one producer every week. Our shows are usually made by a host, and a producer. Their shows are made by three, four, five, ten people, okay? And the reason for this, if you look at the economics of podcasting, it's very simple. They have ten times the people in America, so they have ten times the audience, so they have ten times the advertising revenue. And if we had ten times the advertising revenue, we would not need crowdfunding. We could make shows that have three or four or five producers, and we wouldn't have to ask for support. Now, that might be stuff that is of interest to those of us who make the podcast, but I think it also needs to be of interest to podcast listeners because, you know, I, I can't pretend that we are making shows that are like S-Town or This American Life. You can do a lot more with five or six people than you can with two. So what we haven't done yet is tell that kind of story, long form storytelling podcasts, podcasts that require deep investigation, high production, travel. I mean, it's, it's kind of wonderful to me that in this podcasting boom, there's now this appetite to tell long form stories, serious in-depth journalism, stuff that I could never do in one episode of Canada Land. Our team, is capable of that level of work. We have amazing storytellers here. We have very thoughtful, very skilled journalists working here, but we are putting out so much content with Canada Land and Commons and the Imposter that to dedicate months to one standalone series, it's an impossibility. So our first goal is just to improve that, to get more hands involved in production here, some resources so that our, our regular churn of shows, we have more people working on that and free up resources to work on some more long-term projects. And I want to give everybody here but me a raise. I'm going to try to do that every year, give everybody but me a raise. We want to do that again. I want to invest in our staff here. We've already given them health benefits with your help. We've given them stock options. They're about to become co-owners of Canada Land. I want to give them on-the-job training too. I want people to be able to grow here. I want this to be like a place where you can actually have a career and not just a job. That's what we're trying to do first. But what we want to do second, our second goal this year is to do the first Canada Land standalone podcast series that, that really tries to tell one of these big stories. And we know which story we want to tell. 
Ryan McMahon brought it to us. Ryan, of course, is one of the hosts of Canada Land Commons. He is an Anishinaabe comedian and broadcaster, among other things. And he is from an Indigenous community not far from Thunder Bay, Ontario. And he brought my attention to a series of really disturbing headlines, these awful stories coming from Thunder Bay. It began years ago. They started to find bodies, mostly in the river and mostly of Indigenous youth. There have been eight bodies of Indigenous students found in the river in Thunder Bay. There have been other deaths. The rate of these deaths seems to be increasing. Three bodies have been found recently. I would like to be more specific about exactly who was found and where, but the reported details here uh, are actually strangely foggy. And, you know, there's talk of suicide, there's talk of drinking, and there's also criticism that the cops don't want to look beyond that at other possible, could it have been racially motivated murders? Because racially motivated murder happens in Thunder Bay, Ontario. There's another story of a mom who somebody threw a trailer hitch at her from a moving car and she died. And this apparently happens all the time in Thunder Bay, people throwing stuff at the local indigenous community, like Thunder Bay has the worst hate crime record in Canada. It's six times the national average. It's a very unique place I'm learning Thunder Bay. It is sort of like a magnet town where indigenous people from surrounding communities all come to uh, when they reach age to go to high school from communities that don't necessarily have high schools. And the racism there is just off the charts. It's literally like six times the rest of Canada. But the headlines don't stop there. There's weird stuff going on in Thunder Bay. The chief of police is facing a trial for obstruction of justice. The mayor and his wife are facing charges for obstruction of justice and extortion. There is a high-profile lawyer who is facing all these sexual assault charges. All of these cases are linked, and the details that have been reported about all of this are really, really thin. It's really hard to figure out what relationship all of these facts bear to one another and how this all, all of these people at the highest levels in Thunder Bay, what that means for the population of Thunder Bay and why these kids keep dying. So Ryan McMahon wants to go back to Thunder Bay and we want to send him there to do a new podcast. We want to partner him up with skilled radio producers and journalists to tell this story as best we can. We want to do it like, we want to do it like The Wire. We don't want to tell like just, oh, it's a terrible, tragic story of tragedy and sadness. We want to actually try to figure out why. And we want to look at all levels. We want to look at the schools. We want to look at the indigenous community. We want to look at the cops. We want to look at the city. We want to look at everything that is happening to try to tell you a story that I think needs to be told. And I think that the fact that nobody has tried to get at the big picture of this yet is very much about the limited journalistic resources in Canada. So we are moving from just being a critic of the media in Canada to trying to fill some of the holes that we've identified. And the first thing we want to do is this series about Thunder Bay. That is a goal. That is something that we are looking to you to fund. And what I want you to do right now is go to patreon.com slash CanadaLand. Go there if you want to support us. Go there if you just want to have a look at something that I'm about to tell you about. And again, this is an idea that we threw around the office and it actually went from being a joke to a reality. And that is our new beer. It is my pleasure to announce CanadaLand Sour. This is brewed by uh, some new friends of ours around the corner at Mascot Brewery, makers of very delicious beer, craft brewery here in Toronto. And they have brewed for us a limited run of our own sour beer. How shall I describe this beer? It's a dry hopped ale with overnotes of sourness and bitterness that evolves in the palate to give way to a lemony, juicy, citrusy kind of a flavor. It's acidic, but you know what? It's very refreshing. It's the kind of thing that you didn't even realize you needed until it's like inside your head and then it's just delicious and you can't get enough of it. This is real, by the way. You can drink this beverage. It exists. And it has a wonderful label that is designed by Canada Land patron and mad genius, James Braithwaite. Go have a look at his beautiful artwork, beautiful and disturbing artwork for Canada Land Sour Beer at patreon.com slash Canada Land. And what we're doing is we have a limited amount of beer and there's two ways you can get it. If you become a patron, there's a limited number of tickets to come to the official launch party at Mascot Brew Pub. We will be there. Come raise a pint of sour beer with us or... If you sign up now, there's a limited number of uh, Tall Boy four packs. You can reserve your own four pack of Tall Boys of Canada Land Sour Beer on our Patreon, patreon.com slash Canada Land, along with other stuff that we can send you if you'd prefer. If you're not a beer fan, there is our book. It is a Globe and Mail number one bestseller, Toronto Star and Amazon number one bestseller, The Canada Land Guide to Canada. You can get that 
there is a brand new poster, there is a brand new t-shirt, and guys, we now have socks. Yes, Canada Land socks designed by Sock Club. Justin Trudeau, I dare you. I dare you. Now, to those of you who are already supporting us on Patreon, we still need your help. If you're interested in, in this swag, then you can adjust your patronage and, and we'd be happy to send you this stuff. But, but what I also want to ask you to do is even if you are already supporting us, this is a great time to tell people why you support us, because the more people talk about a crowdfunder, the more people give to a crowdfunder. So you can actually multiply your support just by talking about it and uh, getting everybody to do so at the same time as part of the idea here. And that's how we're going to have a successful month. So please, uh, uh, this is a great time to do that. And if you do not support us yet, but you've been listening to me talk and anything I've said has made any sense to you at all, or if, if, if you've ever listened to the show and thought about supporting it, if you've ever thought like, I'm glad that Canada Land exists, didn't used to exist, it might not exist in the future, but I'm glad it exists now, or I'm glad that Commons exists or The Imposter, or I'm glad that this news story was reported that otherwise would never have gone reported, then I submit to you that you should just do it now. I think we're worth it. I think we punch well above our weight. I think we provide a lot of value to the people who want to have an impact by funding independent media in Canada. We do not take money from the government. We know that you want us to be independent, and so we don't even fill out those forms. We're not looking for that. We are only asking you. It takes like a minute to sign up. It takes less time than that to cancel if you ever want to do that. Go to patreon.com slash CanadaLand. Enough of me. Here's my interview with Sarah Pauly. Enjoy Canada Land Sour responsibly. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community they're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day -day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible, heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. Can I just say, like, hiring navigators seems like a spectacularly bad idea in crisis. It looks bad, and they don't do a good job. I like, know. why would you ever hire that? I don't think anyone has really benefited. No. Like, if it's, it's just like what guilty people in Canada do is they hire navigators. So <laughs> exactly. I wouldn't. In fact, I've hired a navigator. Uh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> just Let's so talk. you know. <laughs> This is um, nice. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome. You know. This is nice. Yeah. It's love good, it right? Here. Yeah. The light's good. The air's good. <laughs> love it. It's a, it's a dank little interrogation booth, sometimes confessional. Fantastic. Yeah. So, Sarah. <laughs> so, um, Sarah Pauly, you have said, I'm done trying to make elegant films that subtly talk about something. Which of your films do you consider elegant? I knew that that was going to be your question. <laughs> I mean, I've actually been asked that question a couple of times today, like while I'm doing Press Fairly's Grace. But I knew when you said it that you would question 
And that's why I used the word trying to make elegant films, because I knew Jesse Brown would argue that none of them have been elegant. Wow. So I said trying in anticipation of Canada Land. Am I like a voice in your head? That holds me back. Holding you back. Um, I finally saw the stories that we tell. I was flying back uh, on Air Canada. I think you're a part of their permanent collection. They should just have like an icon for you, like besides like new releases, Sarah Polycom. <laughs> it's a great movie. And it struck me like, wow, you're actually a really interesting journalist. Oh, thank you. It's a really complicated piece of journalism. And oh. it's uh, the stories that are most integral to people, like who am I and where do I come from? People use the shittiest journalism. Yeah. They're relying on third-hand accounts mm-hmm. that are always totally exaggerated and don't bear any scrutiny. Like if you go and do journalism to anyone's story of, of who they are... Mm-hmm. You'll find huge holes in the story. Hmm. So anyhow, that's an elegant Thank Sarah Pauly film. Thank you very much. Ooh, you surprised me there. <laughs> but by the way, I just want to say, yeah. it's nice that you finally saw Stories We Tell, which came out five or six years ago. I listened to most Canada Land episodes. So I just want to say there's a little bit of a disparity in our relationship in terms of who rushes out to see the other one's work <laughs> first. But I'm glad you finally saw Stories I've only made three movies, Jesse. I was, you know, I, I watched Guardians of the Galaxy 2, and I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> All right. Do you know why I avoided watching it? Because I don't like you. Because I, I because <laughs> Or I, your family. Yeah. It's because I was at a dinner party with you years ago. I totally hang out with Sarah Pauly, guys. So N- much. No big deal. Don't make, <laughs> don't make it a thing, everybody. And you and Michael told yes. us that story. Yeah. Before, way before, before I think it was yeah. in production. Um, yeah. it, it was still kind of happening. Yeah. And it was like enthralling. I was afraid that the movie wouldn't be as good as you telling it oh, at that dinner really party. Nice. I'm like, I like Sarah. I love that story. Like, why would I ruin this by watching the movie? <laughs> yeah, it's funny because I, I remember it was that my dad and I, it had literally just happened that he had just found out that he was not my biological father. And he had started to talk about, well, this is actually kind of a good story. And, you know, he's like immediately reframed it as a really fun story to tell. So he had started to write the story and I had started to write the story. And I remember going to the dinner party and my dad going like why don't we test it out like sort of experimenting with how we would tell the story and that was the first time we'd ever told it to anybody are you serious was it to you guys yeah yeah that's awesome an admittedly cynical audience but it was a good test no i i, I felt like you had done it many times and i was like they've, they've obviously done this many no. times but i'm i'm quite happy for that was um, that's not the first time we hung out the first do you remember the first time we hung out um i remember two things okay. i remember jonavision we were on the same episode of Jonavision because we were rebellious teenagers. They did an episode on, on student rights. Student rights. You were there because you had just turned political. Yeah, okay. Fair enough. <laughs> like, Fair enough. I yeah, yeah. that characterization. Yes, I will. I was there because I was running an, a, an underground student newspaper. newspaper. And then there was a kid who was there because he had been expelled for having a butter knife at a school <laughs> that had a zero tolerance policy towards weapons. It was plastic, I believe. He had a plastic. It was a plastic fork, I think. Yeah. No? Yeah. We really hugged the mic. We didn't give that kid a chance that to have That kid didn't say. get to talk. You did a lot of, like, criticizing the set. Like, you were like, look at all those, wi-. like, they had this, like, faux cool set where they had wires hanging out of the ceiling. And you did a lot of going, wow, look at uh, the wires are all hanging down. And budget cuts at the CBC, Jono. Like, you were so mean. <laughs> Already so mean. Really and obnoxious, so young, too, it so sounds mean. like. And then, and then we went on something that could be characterized as a date, but I don't think it was. Well, I think that if you had found me more appealing, you would have considered it may it a have date. been a date, yeah. Yeah. Um, Anyway, we went out one night, then I coughed a whole bunch, and then you claimed, I remember in an email afterwards, that I bolted out of the car really quickly, and you were like, don't worry. Like, the fact that you were hacking, it's not like I was going to shove my tongue down your throat or anything. You were, like, very defensive that you would not not consider it a date. (laughs) (laughs) I am not coming across well. Uh, What I remember about that date... You've improved over the years. Thank you. Uh, Why I know that it wasn't a date is because you took me to your ex-boyfriend's house mid-date. That was a sign. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not great at reading signs, but the fact that we're at her ex-boyfriend's house probably means... Oh, you know what else you did that was awful that night? Sorry, I know this isn't why I was called here, but I feel the need to... All right, let's go. Fine. Do you remember... I This literally just... I remember this now. We went to that ice cream place after with... Cafe, said ex-boyfriend not Corey. diplomatic with the other the other gelato place and the, like, the, like the really old one ice cream some guy got killed there recently Sicilian yeah. ice cream cafe yeah. and then you started saying to all the servers and behind the counter and, like I was a teenager so like Road to Avonlea was still fresh for me and like not that cool and something I was trying to distance myself from and you were like hey it's Sarah Polly. would you want an autograph she loves giving autographs 
like to all the servers. That is not it was what happened. So at all. humiliating. That's not even what happened. It hurts to think about it. I'll tell you what, what did ha- you do. What happened was, first of all, you took me to your like. like I'll just say again, you took me to your ex boyfriend's house on what ha- what you know what had yeah. been a date or like a furtive okay. aborted date. Um, <laughs> and then a bunch of us ended up going out for ice cream, and then you were approached by like I won't call them fans because you're like at this level of fame where it's like I, I have like the perfect level like like once every three months somebody will come up to me in yeah. the airport and be like, hey, you're Jesse Brown. And you only know who I am if you listen to the show and then maybe you like it a bit. So yeah. it's only positive. You have the other thing where people are like, who are you? Like, like <laughs> I know you, which I wouldn't wish on my worst yeah. enemy. Anyhow, these two very nice people came up and they said, hey, are you Sarah Polly? And you like had a panic attack. I know. I get. St- I used to get stressed. You like it, you weren't like a diva, like, don't look at me. But you weren't like, hi, nice to meet you. <laughs> That's true. You just like were like completely free, and I thought, wow, she sucks at being famous. <laughs> just terrible at being famous. And then I was a jerk. I was like, hi, yes, this is Sarah, but she really is just protecting her voice right now. Um, if you want to give me your address, she'll send you a glossy. That's right. That's what you said. It was funnier than what I remembered. You, it was not as mean and more funny than what you remember, but you, you just were. Yeah. Just dying a thousand deaths. Well, like you're around a bunch of other teenagers. Like the last thing you want is for someone to come up and remember Road Davenly in front of your very cynical teenage friends. This was my takeaway from both of those experiences. I thought, oh, she wants to be a normie. Yeah. Right? And then it kind of jobbed with everything else. Like, And like, you wanted to be famous. So we were at cross purposes. <laughs> <laughs> and you were like acting like a normal kid. And you didn't like, you kind of, yeah. like you were like an yeah. actor who studied normal kids. Yeah. And we're like, I'm hanging out with kids. This is what we do when we hang out. I'm like, I don't know if I buy this. Is anyone interested in this other than us? I, don't I find it interesting. We've never actually had this conversation. I've seen you a million times since then. We've never really like it's true. processed this. So I'm glad we're doing it. I find it interesting because I think it does, like, if I look at everything you've done, I think that there's something there. I think that, like, you've rebelled against what Mm -hmm. you're supposed to do if you're, like, first of all, the the first thing you're supposed to do if you're a child actor is you're supposed to, like, die of a drug overdose um, when when you are, like, 15 and look, like, (laughs) grotesque to people because they remember you when you're six. So you defied that expectation. Thank you. Congrats. (laughs) But you didn't move to L.A. You could have done, you could have gone a different route. And there's even a prescribed route that you you rejected. If you were trying to reject the role of Canada's sweetheart. And I hired Navigator to help me do so. Right. You couldn't have actually engineered a path to have entrenched the role better than what you've done. Oh, that's hilarious. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like staying in Toronto, investing in Toronto real estate. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Getting involved in progressive Toronto politics. Making films where people go to see Claude Jutra movies while Feist covers <laughs> Leonard Cohen. <laughs> that is like you like you're you want the role, you know. Uh, I'm just trying to help me because I'm trying to deal with being Canada's sweetheart, and it's not easy, you know. It's, it's you would like both me to guide you through yeah, it. Yeah, it's, it's hard. People want me it to put on a hurt. bonnet. I don't want to put on the. It's not me anymore. It's always been your problem. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that none of this had like a particular plan to it or an idea of an image involved in it. So I feel like I, I, I mean, I grew up with like around you guys and your ilk. And like, I think that you guys did think a lot about, you know, and, and I'm not saying that in a denigrating way, like you thought a lot about the media and you thought a lot about image and you thought a lot about like people who um, were in the public eye as having, you know, made certain decisions. And I think that I didn't really think about it. I think because I did it since I was so young, I wanted to think about everything else other than, you know, who you were, what your image was, or who, you know, people would perceive you as. So I do think, like, I did things... I mean, everyone responds to certain amounts of sort of pressures from the people they're surrounded by. So I'm sure I wasn't immune. It's not like I'm a completely independent thinker. Nobody is. But, But I think that I was just doing what I felt like I wanted to and needed to do at any given moment. And I think it also came from this pretty large lack of ambition. Like, I think that I had a taste of fame when I was like seven and eight and it was terrifying. Like, there was nothing good about it at Mm -hmm. that age. It was only scary. So I had no romantic notion of what that might be or feel like. And it led to me thinking like, yeah, I want to act as long as I don't get too famous. And as soon as that seems like it's going to happen, I got to do something else. Or... Um, kind of maybe going out of my way to not think about, you know, how I'm getting styled or what I look like or, you know, what my role is. Um, so I don't know. I think that 
everything seems like it has kind of an arc at the end of the day or there's some kind of like thought behind it. But actually, I think it's sort of lack of ambition, <laughs> like ambivalence. Yeah, that's how people would. And yeah. that ends up being like, you know, right. What it, ends up crafting something. Here you are. Yeah. Where I am on Canada land. Yeah, whereas you described me at 18, and I sound like exactly the asshole that I am right now. There's like, there's no, no path. You improved. Like, yeah. you are the great, like, hope for the world. I'm saying that with total earnestness right now. Go you on. can't accept it, but I am. What? Because you turn from this, like, cynical person who, like, thought they were being so revol- revolutionary by, like, not being progressive because they were surrounded by progressive friends. So, like, a white dude who's like, I'm right wing, I'm so rebellious, but it was only, like, within, like, this little pocket of progressive people. And always very smart and funny. So hard to argue with, even when I was, like, really bugged. But then you, like, I don't know, you've done all these amazing things where you've done, like, made huge social contributions and, like, you're putting stuff out there that nobody else is. And in fact, as it turns out, there's like this very genuine earnestness and passion in you for what's like you have conviction. I, I'm Jesse Brown for me is like an inspiration. I'm I'm saying this. You think I'm joking. I'm not. I talk about it all the time. Like the most cynical teenager became like this very hopeful person. So thank you. This is very disarming. Okay, let's cast. <laughs> Actually, this this is a date. I love hanging out with actors because all they do is compliment each other. Yeah, um, it's very very kind. You're still act. obnoxious sometimes. Yes, I don't no. Want to I'll paint it. Can I tell you something? Like, Rosalie. it's very important to me to be really obnoxious because I live in fear of like there's always exposés going on and people are always being exposed for being not what they appear to be. Uh huh. Right, and I I am very aware uh-huh. of all of my deficiencies. Uh-huh. I would rather that I don't yeah, want yeah. there to be any. Secret deficiencies. They're just only public deficiencies. That's awesome. I feel like I'm going to do like a Jagit Singh and be like, we support you, Jesse. We love you. It we support was, you. We love you. <laughs> <laughs> it was all uh, it was a series of accidents. And, and to, to want to talk to people and just like say true things, even if it's snarky and cynical, does have some sort of underlying idealism that like we should be having these conversations. But I didn't imagine that in a more practical way, good things would come out of this. And mm-hmm. it was only because people supported and helped me. I can edit this out later, but you are a person who helped me mm-hmm. when I was in over my head mm-hmm. and didn't know what to do with the Gameshi story. Mm-hmm. Before I had gone to the star, mm-hmm. I needed legal help, and I knew mm-hmm. that you uh, knew a lot of people in that mm-hmm. world, and I mm-hmm. called you, and you helped me, and mm-hmm. uh, through a circuitous path that actually led me to some stuff that made it possible to Interesting. report. Interesting. So I don't think I've ever thanked you for that. No. Isn't this This is turning so sickening. Lovely. Well, I remember you said something around that time that has stuck with me for a long time. And this is when I think I had my big moment where I was like, Jesse Brown is turning out to be a hero. Um, was you you know, I did point you in the direction of a few lawyers to talk about how to put the story out, because there are a lot of, you know, potential problems with that for you personally. And, uh, and risks. And I remember that the legal advice you got, which was wise, was be very, very careful. And like, don't do anything. Be very careful. And I remember you talked to me after that and said, I'm not looking for someone to tell me whether to put this story out there. I'm looking for someone to tell me how. Yeah. And it occurred to me after you put the story out there and that came out that the people who change the world the people who do good things that actually make a difference do it against all good advice that you have to have you have to have a little bit of obnoxiousness in you to go like i'm not going to do the wise thing i'm not going to do the thing that the things that that everyone that loves me thinks i should do right now i'm going to do the right thing and it's going to be really scary and i might have to ignore everybody who's giving me good advice to do it and that's kind of what you did i mean you were smart about it and you did it in ways that protected yourself to a certain extent but that was a bit of an epiphany for me that like those moments in life where you're tested in terms of your principles have to do with ignoring sound advice sometimes. Yeah. The thing had a life of its own and yeah. a lot of it had to do with being in constant contact with people who were trusting yeah. me yeah. with something that was really big. So it made my concerns feel small. But now that I think yeah. back on it as like a guy with like kids and I had, we, 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 yeah. you know, like babies at home and just, yeah, like the whole thing. I don't know if I, I mean, I feel like I have more to lose now and I feel, I don't know, like, you know, these things, like you're like life is really unpredictable. But I think those women's voices were louder for you than anything else. And I think that's unusual. I think they're usually the ones that people choose to keep the quietest in the background of their life. So I, you know, it was a good moment. It's thank you. 
you have kind of gotten more engaged in some of the stuff surrounding that. Like mm -hmm. you uh, produced the Better Man documentary. Remind people what that yeah, is. Yeah, A Better Man is an amazing uh, film made by Atiyah Khan and Lawrence Jackman. Um, and it's about Atiyah's uh, experiences reconnecting with actually her abuser and uh, confronting him about the abuse uh, from the past. She was a victim of a survivor of domestic uh, violence. And it sort of, it's their conversations and trying to understand what was happening from his point of view and him hearing what happened from her point of view. Um, so it was a bit of a groundbreaking project. I've known Atia for a long time and um, I'd known her story for a long time. And when she suggested that she wanted to make a documentary about this, I thought it would be such an incredible thing that I'd never seen before. I'd never seen a conversation years later between an abuser and the person they'd abused. And, you know, she then had a background in social work and dedicated her life to the issue of violence against women. So she was coming at it both as an expert and as someone who'd survived it. That was an incredible thing to just be on. I, I, I wasn't actively involved, but I was just a supporter and on the periphery of it. Well, so another really interesting piece of journalism and something that I think it just felt like that this is the logical next step for us to discuss because like there, there is a contradiction or I don't know if it's a contradiction or maybe it's an obstacle. It seems like there is a growing acceptance of the fact that like there are these contrary, there's these contrary facts. On the one hand, there's a growing acceptance that like, oh my God, that, like there is an epidemic of sexual assault, sexual harassment, rape that goes unseen, unreported, and that the system is terrible at dealing with. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, maybe this is not contradictory, but it's an obstacle. At the same time, to be accused of that feels at this point like a stain on one's reputation that you could never recover from. Mm -hmm. So you're both saying that this is something that like many, many, many men, thousands of men are guilty of, have done. But you're also saying that to be accused of this is like that's the end of everything for you. And to actually tell a story where an abuser owning up to it and, and then kind of moving on to this next step of examining that and having this reconciliatory conversation, there was so much bravery on the part of both of those people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and mm -hmm. it's 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 similar to the conversation about racism, where like we've allowed racism to become this like disastrous stain on one's reputation. At the same time, we all kind of accept that everybody's a little bit racist, mm -hmm. and really, it's the systemic racism that we need to face. But mm -hmm. everyone's like, not me, not me, not me, mm -hmm. and, it, and it's it's an obstacle that blocks the conversation. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. the ability to. Yeah, you know, like rehabilitate or at least, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny, like, you know, Atia, like, I think what she brings to it is this sense that if we treat people who do these things as monsters, we're not going to get anywhere. Like, it's not helpful. Mm -hmm. Like, what we need is help for these people and we need them to know who to call. Like, if someone is abusing what do they do to change that? Because right. actually abuse is always going to go on. Like as much as we try to stop it, it's not something that's going away anytime soon. So instead of going like those people are monsters and they're not going to get dealt with, isn't really going to help women very much. So I think one of her points is like, it's always on women to like deal with this and go to therapy and process it. But what about men? Like why is part of the onus not on men to sort of look at their own behavior and why are there not, you know, obvious resources out there for the men? Now, there are people like Todd Augusta Scott, who's in the film, who do work with men. But I've heard of men in situations where they've been abusing, actually calling like like organizations, violence against women for, and, and asking, what can I do? And uh -huh. then hanging up the phone and going like, we don't help you. I think that things seem to be getting better on that front. But I feel like we we do need to look at that. And, you know, it was funny, like when the whole thing with the Gameshi thing was brewing and you were working on it, but it hadn't broken yet. I was talking to Atia a little bit about it. And we had this like fantasy that she was going to go on cue with a better man and talk to Gian. And I just, I so wish that I could have seen that conversation. Yeah. Um, because uh, yeah. I do think like, you know, it would be really interesting, good to know like what was going on with him. Yeah. And how he is processing it, how he's taking responsibility for it, if at all. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing probably not, but I would be very curious to know how he's processed or yeah. integrated any of this. I'm told that he considers the thing just a complete series of misunderstandings uh -huh. and, and, and stitch ups uh -huh. and, and that uh, that there's no I mean, that's uh -huh. the thing is that is that 
I think that there can be these conversations are needed, but there, but like you have, there has to be truth first. You yeah. know, there yeah, has yeah, to be yeah. like Absolutely. you, you got to tell the truth. Absolutely, that, yeah, you have to before you can reconcile, done. you got to tell 100%, the truth. Hundred percent, yeah, yeah. And I, yeah, I mean, I feel like the other thing that I feel like about that story that for me is really unresolved is the fact that we all knew, right? And I feel like not enough people are saying that. People are saying everybody kind of knew there were whispers, but we knew. Like you and I knew. We sat at dinner parties and heard jokes about how violent Jiang was all the time, right? Yeah. Why didn't, like, we're weird. Like, why didn't we do anything? Like, we can talk about how nobody did anything, but we're part of that. Like, there were very few people I knew in the media in Toronto who didn't know that he was violent with women. And none of us felt like we lived in a world where there was anything to do about that. I find that extremely confusing. Like, I feel like now... 100% 100% we would. In fact, I have. And, you know, since yeah. then, I've become very clear about what is not okay and what needs to be reported. And absolutely. But I feel like pre that case, and I, I do think this is part of the contribution that you made in bringing it forward, is uh, the lines around sex and violence were somehow blurred. And we somehow felt like this was something that we could joke about at a dinner party and not do something about well, it's why it's difficult for me to accept all the nice things you're saying because whatever whatever good feelings I have about my behavior throughout that story, there's like a, kind of an equal amount of shame in when I was Catherine Burrell's friend at CBC and, and was aware of some of this stuff. And I remember, you know, this coming up at dinner parties and, you know, it, it's not like we didn't know better. We know that, that, that we knew at that time that that is not acceptable, mm-hmm. but we didn't know what to do. And, it, and the way that it got processed was it became humor. Yeah, be, yeah. You know, it yeah, became like, like we the would The funny joke. party story about this horrible date you had as opposed to an assault. Yeah. 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 And and it makes you kind of wonder, what are we doing now? Like, yeah. like what are what are similar things that we just haven't had? Yeah. It's sort of why news stories matter. Like, like that's one story that yeah. there's thousands, of, you know, but you need that one that is told to you in such a way. And then you like... It kind of casts everything into this relief, like, no, 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 no. You can't, like, we have to handle this differently from this point forward. Yeah. I mean, I do feel like that the conversation that happened around that case was a watershed. I mean, I know there's been a lot of debate about whether or not it was a watershed. And certainly the way those women were treated in court was not a watershed. And it sent us back to realizing why women don't come forward in these cases and how horrible the experience was. But I do think it was a watershed in terms of the conversation, in terms of a lot of people's consciousness around what what they think that they can integrate as normal behavior and what they can't. I yeah. do think that like we, there, it opened up a conversation that continued, I think with Trump, with the Billy Bush conversation. And I think it keeps going where women, women are now kind of think ready to talk about this. A lot of them have been for a long time, but more of us are, I don't know that anything in our society is adjusted to make room for that conversation, but at least it's happening. The world is, it's weird how things happen. Like, I don't know, trying to actually add up, was that good or bad? Like, I think that that trial probably scared off mm-hmm. thousands of women from Absolutely coming forward. Absolutely, it did. It also inspired a bunch of new laws. Some of those yeah. laws might themselves get struck down. You know, yeah. like yeah. It, it, I think it did create, whereas every organization was turning a blind eye to the kind of mini Jeans in their midst, now it flipped from yes. let's ignore this to like, oh my God, we have a huge liability. Let's do something about this before it bites us. Yes. And yeah, like that happened, you know? Yeah, yeah. Culturally, I agree with you that the, the conversation changed. Practically, I don't know. I, don't, yeah. I mean, and how can you look at like, at the election of Donald Trump and, and you know, the Gameshi story only went so far, but there was the Cosby story. There was a sense wider than Canada that things had changed. And then everyone went and elected Donald Trump after everything. You yeah. know, so how like that doesn't compute. You can't really measure it in terms of a linear progress, I guess. No. I think for me, the important thing is I just want to stop seeing women destroyed in the process of coming forward with this stuff. I really want to see them stop having their lives destroyed. And it's just that to me is clearly a big gap and a big problem. And I know you can't toss out innocent until proven guilty. I know there are, you know, you don't ever want to put an innocent person in jail. Like I realize that. Yeah. You can't have a system in which lawyers, if they love someone, tell them to absolutely do not come forward in a sexual assault case. That's the advice they would give. The advice they give is, I love you. Don't do this. You'll come close to suicide. Clearly there's a gap where the system isn't working. But if you talk to most lawyers about it, I would say like, I'm surrounded by lawyers in my family and my life, but it's like talking to a deeply religious person about the big, big bang theory. Like there's just some information that like you literally, there's language you can't, you can't have a conversation anymore. Like they are talking in another language about another world that the idea that something has to shift within the system 
because something's not working for women, because you're going out and telling people who you believe to not come forward, that for them doesn't translate into we need to change something in the system. They will protect the idea of the way that system is built yes. at all costs. I find that really confusing because I'm talking about deeply smart, progressive feminist people who are not able to think that and, and who are appalled by these new laws who think they should be struck down. Yeah. Yeah, the new law is that that uh, that a criminal defense lawyer would have to share with the crown incriminating evidence against their own mm-hmm. client because that's mm-hmm. something that would never happen in any mm-hmm. other case. But in this case, yeah. the law is suggesting. So it, I think it's an anathema to their sense yeah. of how everything works. It's a special yeah. exception for these cases. I understand their protests. I understand like like it's okay to like wave your fist in the air and say the system must change. I actually like there's some things that I know that the system could do right now. Providing legal aid and making like uh-huh. you know not putting people like the way that you, you don't have to face the person who abused you and there's mm-hmm. things like that you could do but like some of the stuff the fundamentals don't work for this kind I of a know. crime and also because if it's about lying or not sharing information like I mean most women I know have been sexually assaulted one way or the other I have been you don't remember everything you do block stuff out. So mm-hmm. if we're if, if everyone who's been sexually assaulted is held to the same criteria in terms of truth and of even knowing the truth as everybody else and every other crime, we already have a problem. Like, I mean, people send ingratiating emails and letters to the people who have abused them because they're scared or because they're trying to normalize. So that can't be held up. I mean, when I saw Lucy Ducator's letter in court, I was like, yeah, I get it. I've written a letter like that to someone who assaulted me because... You're scared. You want to normalize it. You want to make it so it didn't happen. The sure. person made you feel like somehow it was your fault. You're trying to remedy that. You're traumatized, right? So nothing about what those women were sort of taken down for surprised, shocked me, or looked unfamiliar to me. I've done all those things. And I think a lot of women have. No, it's terrible. It's it's like the, like trying to normalize it and deny it through like making amends afterwards. Classic, classic post-abuse uh, behavior. Yeah. This whole idea of collusion, trying to talk to other victims. Other women so you don't feel alone and terrified and, and, and support and, each other. And Lucy was like, you know, yeah. I want to be a resource to other people. Yeah. Uh, and and we, were not, we shouldn't be so alone. And then that's used to like, yeah. like the whole yeah. thing is like everything that, every expression of humanity. Yes became evidence of uh, it was awful and it actually was like the moment where I most believed in journalism like I felt like I don't know that the criminal justice system can fill that gap right before that when it was at the level of journalism when we had published our second story and we had eight women telling their stories and, and, and you could turn on the CBC and hear their voice like nobody like I don't know very few people we're doubting them at that point because it's yeah. very hard to listen to a woman's voice who is, who is taking on incredible risk incredible and strain, risk, yeah. nothing to gain, and telling yeah. you a story that just like, yeah, that 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 obviously happened. Yeah. Just hearing their voices was so powerful yeah. and everybody believed them. And then it, it was this uh, second round of accusers who were really just there with, with experiences that were much older than the first yeah. round to support those first accusers. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then it became about them and suddenly they were – the, the beginning and end of, I mean, there's yeah. more than 20. Uh, anyhow. Yeah. I, I mean, I talked once to a really interesting judge about this. And when she said, you know, the problem is they were caught lying. And I was like, but every woman either doesn't, not necessarily lies, but there's a gap and, you know, in it's, certain, there's oh, holes in the story. Fuck them. No, no, no but listen, uh, no, yeah. no, but listen, the conversation gets better where I said, but given that, you know, as a woman that there are gaps in memory and you do end up lying, whether yeah. you want to or not, because that's just like part of, what your brain does when it's been traumatized and you've gone nuts. What do you do? And she was like, well, I, I agree. That's part of what happens after you've been assaulted in many cases. But if you've lied, perhaps the courtroom's not the best place for you. So my question is, what is the best place for you? Okay. What is the best place for you so this if is you've why, been assaulted? This is why I'm glad we're talking about this. And, and, and to this whole question of what's changed. The media is the best place for you. Uh-huh. The media and and, and and that's where we haven't done enough. That's interesting. And that's where we haven't done enough. And there were there were a couple of people who mm-hmm. came forward to me afterwards mm-hmm. and said like I want to start kind of a resource like mm-hmm. this is what should have changed and didn't. How do we report these stories? Mm-hmm. And do we report these stories? And in what instance? And it's still totally flawed because if Jean Gameshi hadn't been a big famous Canadian personality, mm-hmm. if it, you know he could have had some other position of power, and the papers would have said, "Ah, why are we going to report this?" Mm-hmm. And I knew because of this avalanche of people of women who came forward to me with stories with other people 
mm-hmm. other men who had various levels of authority and abused it. And I said, look, I'm a media reporter. This is not really in my beat, but let me connect you with the reporter. And, and like none of those stories ended up getting told. Mm-hmm. And so there were a couple of people who were like, I want to sort of resource for, I want to like build journalistic methodologies or actually just have a publication where that's what we do. And what is the threshold of reportability and how do we give the other side a chance to, you know, mm-hmm. to speak that's fair? And how do we not just become some place that's about like destroying people? Because, you know, that's the big fear is that you're just going to become this resource for women to destroy innocent men. It's mm-hmm. like, well, like, when there's like like several independent women telling these stories, like like that, like I think it crosses the threshold where you could at least tell the story and name the guy. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's something that came up on like I'm watching Tintaro's show and and uh, this idea of having like red book, having like some online resource where people it's it's what women do for each other anyhow. Is like mm-hmm. you warn about, but I believe that like you could use the standards of journalism to actually make it a clearinghouse for accusations that have passed a certain threshold. And, 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 and that should happen. Right. You know, somebody needs to, like, I, and I, I would have time to, yeah. like, it's not, it's not for me to. In the same way that I'm not sure punishment in jail is the right solution anyway. Do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like, like the idea of sort of innocent and guilty and someone goes to jail. I'm not sure, like, that, is that better than someone being treated so that they don't abuse again? Like, do we really need someone thrown in jail? Like, I sort of feel like I Depends wouldn't want Depends what they it, did, I guess, but yeah. I guess so, but I feel like I, I wouldn't want things to be reduced to, like, vigilante justice and, like, the lynching of people. I would like, like there to be some kind of structure by which you can come forward and get somebody the help they need when they've been harming people. I don't know. I mean, there's worse, like, naming and shaming is not the worst yeah, you know, it like if it's merited, it, it is. I think that's it, where in I, lieu of yeah. a better system, like like right and right now, like it's not even tiered. Like what Wab Canoe is facing now versus like this decades of 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 dozens of experiences that accus- accusers against Kamesh. It's not the same thing, and you know, we just have this kind of like villain box now that we're placing people in. And uh, yeah, I just feel like it's so hard to know, and I guess that's why it would be nice to have an actual legal procedure by which we, you know, ascertain these things. Cause I do, I do worry about the idea of like, I think naming and shaming can get, uh, tricky. Although I wouldn't, you know, if someone's been assaulted and someone's not being outed, I think it's like an important thing for the safety of other women to do it. But I think, th- I think it's complicated. I mean, Look, I think it's journalism like has long mass. been there to yeah. like, when something doesn't rise to the level of like lock them up, yeah. but they've been doing something wrong. We've yeah. often, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's yeah. a process by which we yeah. have a public conversation yeah. about yeah. bad actors who yeah. are that makes sense. acting in antisocial ways, you know? Yeah. So I have no problem with that if it's yeah. done responsibly and well. And I would, you know, anyhow, like doors open, like anyone, like yeah. I, I would be involved in a project like that. So that's really interesting. Does me talking about <laughs> you like maybe going to shove your tongue down my throat when I was coughing count as naming and shaming? Should I name and shame you? Okay. After this non-date, when I was driving you home, you're like, it's okay. I'll stay in the back seat. Yeah. I didn't. What I did, I totally sat in the back seat. Yeah. I like drove you home. So it was a final, it was a final punch for what you did to me with those, those people asking for We're home, Miss Polly. You can get out now. And then you like bolted from the car. Uh, So I'm the jerk. Okay, you should edit that part out because we're being really frivolous after something really, really serious. So I feel really bad. I feel like a bad person. <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. Thank you very much, Jazzy. That is your Canada Land show. And if you like it, please support us on Patreon. Why don't you have a look? at all the great stuff that we're doing, all the great stuff we want to do, all the great stuff we have to send you. Have a look at the campaign itself and how it's uh, and how it's performing at this moment that you're listening to this show. Come to our website at patreon.com slash CanadaLand. And as we proceed through this month of crowdfunding, we have an incredible, incredible lineup of interviews. I will be talking to Daniel Dale of the Toronto Star. I will be talking to the New Yorker's Adam Gopnik. And I will be talking to Jeremy Scahill of The Intercept. These are conversations you will not want to miss, and I will also be announcing new Canada Land projects. Now is the time that we need your help. This is what fuels us for the rest of the year. You can help us by going to patreon.com slash Canada Land, or you can help us by spreading the word on Facebook and Twitter or anywhere else. Thank you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.